Hello, lovely humans. I'm Wildly, and you're listening to Sex Stories, a podcast where we talk about very personal things in an effort to improve sex lives everywhere. And my guest today is quite literally an expert at improving sex lives. Welcome, Heather Jeffcoat. Thanks, Wyo. Thank you so much for having me. Do I call you, should I title-wise call you DPT? Should I call you Dr. Jeffcoat? What do you usually go by? Either Heather, pretty much, or Dr. Heather. Dr. Heather. Oh, I like Dr. Heather. (laughs) Okay, can you please give our listeners a little overview about yourself, the work that you do, and your personal background? Yeah, so I am a physical therapist here in Los Angeles, and I have three offices where I specialize in primarily treating women's sexual health, but really I, we treat men transgender health as well. It's just a smaller population for my office. Awesome. And most of the women that come have painful intercourse or the inability to have sex because they have pain. Not awesome. Not awesome. I mean, some are so severe that they can't even insert tampons without pain. So there's a lot of you know, muscle guarding that can be associated with that and some other things which we can dive into. But really they have difficulties with penetration. To some extent, some of them have orgasmic difficulty, especially Mm. if they're having pain. But even without pain, sometimes they're having difficulty achieving orgasm or they're having like a hyperarousal syndrome as well, where they're almost always having orgasms, but it's extremely distressing and socially disruptive. Okay. I actually didn't know that was a thing. It is a thing. So like people will be in a conversation with someone and they have no control over it. There's not really any warning signs. So they tend to withdraw socially because it's not like they'll feel, oh, at every, you know, it's not like on a time schedule and it's not like timed with like sitting too long or standing too long. It's usually just out of nowhere. I don't think I've ever met a person like that. It's called persistent genital arousal disorder or PGAD. I imagine that would be so distracting. It is. And people on the outside are like, oh, that sounds like a good problem to have, you know, when they're a lot less informed. Yeah. But on the other, if you could imagine that just happening when you're trying to conduct a business meeting or shoot a podcast or, you know, just, just watch a movie. Wow. Yeah. So, so that would be something else that we treat around sexual dysfunction, but it's, it's usually more so uh, around pain with intercourse or even just like a chronic pelvic pain syndrome where they're having cyclical pain or just non-cyclical ongoing chronic pelvic pain. Well, I have about a million questions I want to ask you, but I want to start by asking a little bit about your personal history in as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing. When do you remember first hearing about sex in your own life? Well, I can tell you it definitely wasn't from my parents. Like it was just never talked about. I would not say it was taboo, but it just wasn't talked about. Like I had had busy working parents. Like they just, I think in a lot of ways, even though I was a good kid, they kind of didn't know what to do with me, but also trusted me because I was a good kid. So can I ask where you grew up? In LA. Okay. Yeah. East of downtown LA. Yeah. It's like 15 miles from here. Got it. You know, I wasn't like small town, Midwest or something. Um, But yeah, it just wasn't discussed. And, you know, the first time that it ever came up, I mean, it was probably just talking with my girlfriends in high school, I'm sure. Did you have sex ed? We did, but honestly, I don't even remember taking it. Like, I know my my school did, but I feel like, did I get out of that health class because I played sports? Like, I don't have a memory. (laughs) Yeah, I know, maybe I missed that day, (laughs) exactly. Like, I don't even have a memory of of taking it. Whoa, okay. So... Talking with girlfriends maybe in high school? I think that's about the first time I I have any like concrete memories of having those discussions. And then how did you transition into the work that you do now? You, in undergrad, you were animal 
behavioral. Oh gosh, I can't. Will you tell us? Yeah. So um, I did my undergraduate at UC San Diego. Nice. And it was a bachelor of science degree. Mm -hmm. And um, while I was there trying to figure out what I want to do with my life and basically settled on physical therapy, Mm. looked at different PT schools and that got me, you know, on the forward trajectory towards where I am now. I started at Duke University where I got my doctor of physical therapy degree and When I started PT school, honestly, like I thought I wanted to do sports medicine Mm -hmm. or work with kids. I didn't even know pelvic floor rehabilitation was a thing. I was going to say, that's the extent of my awareness around PT prior to talking to you. Yeah, mine too. (laughs) As much as I looked into the field before, but it was a very small part of the field back Mm -hmm. then. I mean, and it still is relative to like orthopedic and sports. So for listeners who maybe have no idea that this field exists, will you actually just give us a little overview of what you cover? You did a little bit already, but let's start going into detail. Yeah. So pelvic floor rehabilitation covers a variety of things. I was focusing more on like the sex angle and pelvic pain, but we also treat pelvic floor weakness disorders that might present with incontinence, like Mm -hmm. bladder leakage, bowel leakage, Mm -hmm. very distressing, obviously socially and making people withdraw in that way or limit their activities because they're afraid they might pee their pants if they go running with their kids. So that's another thing that we treat as well as pelvic organ support syndrome, such as like a prolapse, like a bladder prolapse. And those are usually more common postpartum or postmenopausal, but they can happen in sort of seemingly younger, healthy patients that have like a history of chronic straining, like in constipation. So on the bowel disorders, we don't just treat incontinence. We'll also treat chronic constipation, like working in conjunction with a dietitian or nutritionist, because those aren't always exclusively dietary related. There could be pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Just imagine like if you're trying to have a bowel movement, but you're contracting your muscles instead of relaxing them, it's like trying to poop out of a kinked hose. Like it's just not going to happen. So we teach them coordinate. We look not just at the pelvic floor and what is it doing at rest? Is it like truly rested when it's at rest or is it slightly contracted or short or tight at rest? Or is it sort of loose and overstretched that helps us guide the therapy forward? But how do you look at it? We do intravaginal and intrarectal okay. examinations. So we, I can tell by palpation mm-hmm. these things, like we can test muscle contraction ability. It's, you know, it's, not perfect science because I'm not a computer, but right. I've been doing it long enough that I can tell if a muscle is not stretching like it should wow. anywhere in the body, like whether it's your hamstrings or your pelvic floor. It's not just only about the pelvic floor though, because there are a lot of therapists that like only talk about the pelvic floor and we only treat the pelvic floor, but it's also, these things can be driven by other orthopedic conditions like hip issues, back mm. issues. So we really have to do a full screen of posture and sort of basic movement mechanics and see if there's any asymmetries there that are like really remarkable that could be contributing to their symptoms, whether it's pain or, or leakage. Wow. So, so it's like a big picture, like for, for the first visit, just so your listeners, if they've never been to pelvic PT yeah. or wouldn't know what to expect, especially if you're like more used to going for your shoulder, yeah. it's a, it's a history that we're taking and they do fill out a very detailed que- list of questionnaires before they come in, which helps mm-hmm. us guide our session a little more efficiently. Yeah. But then we're kind of going into their specific history. And then there's a physical exam that's in two parts. The first part is more of like a general orthopedic type exam where we are looking at like posture, body mm-hmm. mechanics, mm-hmm. muscle imbalances. And then 
the second part is a pelvic floor muscle exam. So depending on their problem, intravaginal or intrarectal. The nice thing when someone is assigned female at birth and if they still have that original anatomy, then I, I can gleam a lot intravaginally for even problems that are bowel related because oh, really? for some women there are a lot of issues with an intrarectal exam so it's I don't even almost get as much meaningful information because they're just they're just on guard anyways right. so it's it's not as easy as they're like oh yeah I'm used to like putting tampons in like this yeah. is a familiar yeah. feeling so yeah so we assess them in those different realms and then have a discussion with them at the end specific to like what we found how our findings correlate to other findings in the exam and then develop a treatment plan for them going forward i imagine that that would be quite life-changing for people it really is i'll tell you there are a lot of tears yeah. in the oh, office oh that doesn't like, surprise like me probably at all. every other patient i have that has some kind of pain or sexual dysfunction because for years I mean, as you know, from doing your podcast and just living life as yeah. you do, it's so stigmatized. Like people don't want to talk about it. There's not the time devoted to talk about it yeah. in your physician's office. Uh -uh. And women are given a lot of really poor advice. And I talk about it in my book too. Just yeah. they're told like, have a glass of wine. You're just anxious. You just need to relax. Yep. That's, Horrible. that's been advice. They're also sort of told, well, even though the, the tests are negative, uh, you probably have like a herpes or something. Like I've had a handful of patients have that diagnosis, even though all of their- For pain or for- Because they have pain, because they have vulvar pain. Whoa. Yeah. And then and, and that's very distressing because then they're like, yeah. but I'm a virgin. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. some of the things that mm -hmm. go through mm -hmm. my patients' minds and, you know, they're just, it's like dismissed really. It's like yeah. the quick way, like, oh, well, you must have that even though you've never had an outbreak and your blood tests are negative. Like that's, that's the that's symptom crazy. For, for herpes. Yeah. So, you know, they're unfortunately given a lot of delayed yeah. in diagnosis and then therefore delayed yeah. in treatment. Well, that's what I was just going to ask because all of these things are so personal. And I know like even, you know, if I have a non-sexual part of myself hurting, I'm like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I have to get to a pretty severe point before I'll go get seen about it. Like when I, I have herpes in my throat now and I was 12 days into an outbreak where I was having trouble focusing because the pain was so great, but I was like, it's probably just strep throat. It'll go away any second, you know? Well, we do normalize some of these things and it's even normalized by like our friends, family yes. providers. So, yes. you know, if a woman has painful sex, her mom might say, oh yeah, it always hurts a little, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's like, oh, okay, well it always hurts a little. Yeah. Like I, that's just the way it's supposed to be, I guess. So there's a lot of like normalizing yeah. certain amounts of pain and dismissing and, and putting off because quite frankly, like, the way modern medicine is, physicians don't have the time required to really dive into no. the why. And it's much quicker and easier for them to just sort of dismiss it. And, yeah. and then, you know, the patient's kind of none the wiser unless they do their own research yes. or it does get to the point where it's Im impacting every relationship they're in. Maybe they're on the brink of divorce because yeah. in part, you know, this is a major issue for them. They can't be intimate. When women have sexual pain, a lot of times they will shut up intimacy as a whole. In yeah. General. I was just going to say, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm imagining that for people to come to you, obviously you're trained in the science and biology aspect of the work you do, but it seems like you must also be some sort of ninja at holding space for people because it's a huge amount of emotional stuff and you don't know what sort of 
openings they've had emotionally. Yes, exactly. I love that description, ninja. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I might still emotional that. ninja. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just been doing this so long. It's doing a like just specific type of like trauma informed mm-hmm. intake that I'm just very respectful because I don't know their history yeah. before other than what they've written down. I imagine also that that's not necessarily part of the curriculum. No. Yeah. And and it's come through me just developing and learning honestly over over the years. Like. I could ask that a better way next time. Mm-hmm. You know, I just sort of internalize mm-hmm. it. And, so you know, you. Pa- patients want so much to be helped that if I made little mistakes like that here or there, the overall experience was still good. Yeah. I didn't hold on to it, but I always wanted to do better and make totally. patients feel that much more comfortable. So, you know, even in all of my offices, it's a private treatment room. I mean, there's some places that say they do pelvic floor rehabilitation and they don't even have a private treatment room. You're in like a gym behind a curtain, which Whoa. I think is horrific. I mean, that... I think would only work for a very specific type of the population. <laughs> like someone who's just like not shy, very comfortable. Like I'm publicly yeah. nude a lot. I'd probably be okay with it, but it's like but not even ideal. Still, you know, people want some degree of privacy yeah. where there's not going to be someone just on the other side of a piece of fabric hearing your, your medical history, your current oh, complaints of sexual pain and dysfunction. Yeah. That seems really not conducive to yeah, the work so, you have to do. Exactly. So I just, have found ways to motivate them and make them feel really safe and encouraged through their treatment. So a lot of times, honestly, with my patients that have such severe sexual pain disorders where maybe they can't even insert a tampon Mm. at all because it's too painful, I can still often do an internal exam with one glove finger on their first visit, even though like even their OB has never even been able to do that. Because my visits are like 90 to 120 minutes. Like I've built so much trust by the time I've even gotten to that point. I put my hands on them in other ways by looking at like their posture, their flexibility, like how tight their like hip and back muscles are, you know? So I've learned sort of ways to like build trust in a short period of time. And there, I can really remember there's been about three people in my almost 20 years of doing this that I haven't been able to do that on the first visit. Wow. And I've had many patients that were like, n- had never had anything penetrative ever. Wow. So, so it's, it's really, you know, I, I, when I get to the point that I can motivate patients and they trust me, then it's all really like downhill as, as far as in a good way. Yeah. yeah. From, from there. It's, it's like, like skiing, slope, yeah. sledding. Yeah, exactly. But like on a really big cozy donut sled, not the sleds where yeah. you crash and have to worry about getting hurt. Exactly. Okay. So we have a little bit of an idea of what it looks like when you work with clients, but can you go into a little more detail? Like I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, what do you do? You teach Kegels? Like what is, what are some of the other things that you actually do with your clients? Yes. And actually like Kegels is one of the last things that I do with patients, um, especially if they have pain, because that basically um, doing a Kegel is meant to strengthen the muscle, but it's only strengthening the muscle if it's at a normal length mm-hmm. or it's maybe over lengthened a little bit. The muscle? Yeah. Okay. The, and so like a classic example everyone can visualize would be a pregnant woman, mm-hmm. a pregnant woman whose abs are stretched. So mm-hmm. her muscles are weak because there's not good overlap uh, with the muscle fibers. So that would be a, a good indication where pelvic floor strengthening through kegels and other types of exercises would help that person probably reach their goals related to maybe like bladder leakage. 
But on the other scale, they are on the other sort of side of the equation. Muscles are also weak if they're too tight, if they're short and overactive. So mm-hmm. there's something all your listeners can Google um, if they happen to be, you know, handy with that right now, a length tension curve. It's something that looks like a bell-shaped curve and it shows you that basically short, tight muscles are weak and long overstretched muscles mm-hmm. are weak. Your muscles really want to be somewhere in the middle. So if you have a short, tight muscle, you have pain. You can't even insert a tampon, much less a penis or a dildo you are just going to make that muscle shorter and tighter through doing kegels. And oh. this is the other problem too with like general med- medical advice when practitioners don't understand. A lot of doctors think that like any problem with the pelvic floor just needs kegels. Oh, wow. And it can actually make your problem worse if oh. your muscles are short, tight, and overactive. So part of the initial therapy in that case is we do pelvic floor muscle down training. And I do that through manual techniques that, again, depending on what their issue is, where their primary sort of area of overactivity is, it's either intravaginal or intrarectal. Mm. And I also teach them how to use a tool called a, a dilator, which is a medical device, how to use that tool at home to try to replicate as best they can what I'm doing in a therapy session. So it really empowers them to take control of their own pain and they don't rely on me 100% to get them better. They're immediately put in the mindset on day one that this is a team effort. And really anyone that expects me to make them better and doesn't think that they're going to be doing anything but come to PT once every week or two is in for like a really you know, Oh, I get it. Long road, but not as ideal of an outcome. Yeah. So, so I teach them how to do these uh, intra vaginal interactive techniques on their own at home. And then I progress through other types of exercises like breathing t- to help calm the nervous system. And then eventually segue to core strengthening and pelvic muscle strengthening. So it's like a later phase, but a lot of my patients will come even, um, for example, if they have like bladder leakage associated, associated with a strong urge. So there's different types of scenarios why one might would not be able to hold their bladder. Mm-hmm. The ones that have urge associated with it, like running water, or they like get close to the bathroom, they can't quite hold it, typically have overactive muscles. But then they're doing kegels because they're leaking, oh. so they think they're weak, but they're actually making their problem worse if they have an overactive muscle. And most of the time I do find on physical exam that it is a muscle overactivity issue. And so they need to shelve the kegels Whoa. and do more of this muscle therapy, um, you know, basically intravaginal like trigger point releases. So think of like what you might do for a regular muscle that's in spasm or tight or overactive. You know, you're trying to loosen the muscle tissue, stretch the muscle tissue. And then once they're in that normal range of length, per that length tension curve I mentioned, then we can start building up strength from there. That is amazing. So do most of your clients, this is a bad percentage-based question, but do a lot of people tend to come to you for things like bladder leakage or is it, or do you have people that are like, I'm here for my sex life? Yes. And so in my practice, most of it's driven by sexual issues. Really? Like over 90%. I would say most pelvic floor physical therapy practices price skew more towards the bladder and bowel leakage side Mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. It is a more entry-level way to enter the field. It tends to be a lot more straightforward. Sexual dysfunction, not just in the sort of advanced clinical treatment skills that you need, but also in the knowledge base that you need to appropriately treat that as the condition it is, plus the bigger picture that might drive that condition. Like I said, if the hip or back issues, it just takes more, 
more time, more training. And then because of the book that I wrote is really specific to female sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will find my practice that way. And that just kind of drives more of a chronic pelvic pain, female sexual dysfunction, pain practice. But every day, I mean, if I had nine hours of patience in a day, which I frequently do, because even though I own the practice I um, and I have staff that works for me, I still yeah. treat like all the time as well. Mm-hmm. But in a nine hour day, at least seven of them probably have sexual dysfunction. And, wow. and I'd say like usually seven out of seven have pain. Okay. Yeah. Like, like on an average. Can you give our listeners a definition of sexual dysfunction that maybe doesn't include pain? Just so they have an idea of like what exactly nitty gritty we're talking about. Yeah. So maybe I'll like step back and like throw out some of the diagnoses that are pain related around sexual dysfunction. And then I can segue into those. So women that come that have sexual pain will come with a variety of different diagnoses. So one of them is vaginismus that by definition, just means like vaginal muscle spasm. Okay. Oh. It's so it's, it's a horrible name, but <laughs> it really is. Vaginismus, like, and it's a mouthful to say it too. It sounds like a monster that's going to eat yeah. you. Like it's like, <laughs> and you know what? Some of my patients feel like that yeah, because it's, uh, yeah. and, and how they'll typically describe their pain is that it feels like their partner is hitting a wall. Like oh. they're because the muscles are so overactive that just nothing shall pass this point. Wow. So vaginismus is one common diagnosis. Vulvodynia or vestibulodynia is another common diagnosis, and that just strictly refers to vulvar pain. Mm. Um, that would be vulvodynia. Vestibulodynia is even more specific part of the vulva called the vestibule, which is the sort of last external part. Yeah. So if you're like spreading the labia yeah. and you like see the vaginal opening, but then you see like on the inside of the inner yeah. labia, that's the vulva. And mm-hmm. that's still considered an external structure. So that's more of like a external penetrative diagnosis versus vaginismus would be more of like an internal, right? Yeah. They're separated by yeah. like nothing by millimeters, but there is like an actual difference in diagnosis. You can have vulvodynia with vaginismus. Of course you can. Because whenever you have pain, you're going to have muscle guarding, Mm. even if the pain was not originated from muscle guarding. They might also come with something called painful bladder syndrome, which is a bladder urgency frequency disorder, but is almost always associated like 99% of the time. I think actually there was an article that said 98% of the time it's associated with vulvodynia. And then you have this other diagnosis, which is huge called endometriosis. It Mm -hmm. affects one in 10 women, very under discussed, like really need to get more of a conversation to girls at a younger age, because a lot of the symptoms start with their first period. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even have precursor symptoms, but that's for like another, another show, but, but it starts um, very young and they are, they're normalized. They're made to normalize their pain very early. All I know about my best friend has bad endometriosis and had the surgery Mm -hmm. and just extreme pain, extreme cramps. And from a young age, people were just like, some people have cramps, but she like couldn't function. And that's where there's clearly a disconnect in like a little bit of cramping, okay. Yeah. yeah. Vomiting, can't have to miss school, have, have to miss, to school miss and work, work yeah. is not normal. not normal. And yeah. and girls do need to be educated at a young age. Mm-hmm. And then when they become sexually active, they either discover they have vaginismus because mm-hmm. their muscles have been guarding around all this pain for unknown amount of years. Yeah. Or they have like deeper, like if they have it like on their uh, uterus, mm-hmm. um, which would be called adenomyosis. Mm-hmm. They might have like pain with thrusting, like deeper pain. So that would be another painful sex, but it's not like penetration may or may not hurt them, but deeper thrusting often does 
but not always, but it's not uncommon for it to be associated with that. So those would be the more common diagnoses that I see specific to like female sexual pain. Mm -hmm. Now, ones that would not be associated with pain would be like what we talked about before, persistent genital arousal disorder. What do you do for that? So a lot of times they have overactive pelvic floor. And so we're trying to release the tension that's Mm -hmm. on the nerve that's going to the clitoris. So we have a Whoa. Yeah. So I know I should have brought like my anatomy book or something. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Visual aids. (laughs) So, um, so there's a nerve that basically controls a lot of pelvic floor muscle function called the pudendal nerve. And it has three branches. One of those branches goes to the clitoris. So if they have overactivity on that anterior branch, then that can just creating like hyperstimulation of the nerve. And so tension does need to be uh, released. But like with other pain disorders, I mean, we use traditional physical therapy modalities like electrical stimulation can help block some of that like overactive nerve input. It's not like my favorite, like electrical stimulation alone isn't going to help someone. It's more the combination of the down training that we do Mm -hmm. to relax Mm -hmm. the muscles, the program that they're doing at home to make sure that it's staying relaxed. I mean, one patient that I have on my caseload now, it started with her after heavy lifting. So she strained her pelvic floor and the area that became affected ultimately was around the dorsal clitoral nerve. And she started to experience frequent arousal. And, and, you know, it's very distressing to patients and and it does cause sexual dysfunction because they don't want to be sexual with their partner. Like it's so bothersome for them to, to be aroused because they're always feeling aroused or they're afraid that they just won't come out of that arousal. And Whoa. it's just persistent and not always um, alleviated by orgasm. So it's, it's like very distressing. Um, wow. Other types of sexual dysfunction would be women that just don't have as intense orgasms as they remember that mm. they used to have. So I, I code it as like a diminished orgasm. Yeah. More common I've seen that as women have gotten older or like after baby. And a lot of times their muscles are just weak. However, mm-hmm. I have had a couple women who actually had pain. So like, well, my orgasms aren't as good. But then when I evaluate them, I'm like, but you have pain. Like for yeah. most people, pain blocks pleasure, right? Yeah. Most people, most there, people. there's a subset of population that's- I like the back and forth. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's totally fine. And in my office, there's no judgment. Yeah. But, but you know, I asked them like, could do you think that the pain could be one reason that you're not able to have orgasm? So they're yeah. just always kind of in that in that heightened state and not able to go through that full that full cycle. So, so like, yeah, reduced orgasms, diminished orgasms would be another type of sexual dysfunction that I see. And in men, we see sexual dysfunction as well. Like premature ejaculation Mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. be contributed by overactive pelvic floor muscles. Mm. So, and there's so much shame around that too. So much shame around everything, around everything sexual, so much shame. Um, And then with transgender patients, you know, I see male to female, female to male, um, preoperative, Mm postoperative. So in my like trans men that might be preoperative, typically they are the ones that don't want to do their intravaginal home program or their, their front hole. They don't want to treat it like they're very distinct, but, but a lot of times they're okay with me treating it and preparation because they'll, they'll come not necessarily with sexual dysfunction, but again, like just bladder frequency. Mm -hmm. And so they, they Mm -hmm. have pelvic floor dysfunction as like a greater umbrella over all these things that we're talking about. And then in my like trans women, post-operative, I help them with their dilators, which they'll have to use lifelong, but specific to more than just inserting it, like making it more functional and, and helping them achieve their goals. 
That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. But, but all sorts of like non-sex talk, but mostly sex yeah. talk. And, yeah. and I'm not shy about talking with anything with patients. And I don't want them to ever feel judged. And yeah. I always ask them, you know, someone puts painful sex. One of the first questions I'll ask them when we're talking about that in our history is, so how do you define sex? Mm-hmm. Right? Beautiful. Yeah. Because... I don't know, like maybe masturbation is what yeah. hurts and that's what they're calling sex. I can't assume anything. Yeah. So, so yeah, very like leading with my questions and they appreciate too that I seem very informed and not yes. assumptive of their sexual orientation, sexual preferences, you know, what they want to do in the bedroom. So that's amazing. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm just clocking that there are so many different types of people you're seeing and so many different types of things that you're treating what's your experience like in the conversations with them? Like, do you notice like the young people are more eager to share or more shy or like, have you worked, do you work with older, like much older clients as uh, well? Like all, all ages. And I don't see like Medicare over 65 because of stupid rules around yeah. Medicare, but yeah. that's also for another show. <laughs> yeah, Not even this podcast whatsoever, but if they're over 65 and they are still working full time, they can decline Medicare. So mm. I do have like a couple a over 65 patients with sexual dysfunction and sometimes they're the most open about talking about it because they're like still 70 want to have sex they're like what's up with my body like why is it not doing what it did for the first 50 years of my sex life and then I have you know young patients that are just super closed up and shy and other ones that are like I literally don't have a problem with sex it just won't go in like I have no issues (laughs) you know and so it just runs the spectrum as far as their comfort level. And I just, I feed on that and try to pull from them what, what I can, but yeah. they're there. If they walked in the door, yeah. they're there because they know there's a problem and they want help. So they're going to answer whatever questions I ask them. That and they're, beautiful. and they're always very, you know, respectful. Yeah. So do you mostly work with individuals or do you ever see couples or like, does anyone ever come in with their partner to like get extra info or backup or whatever? Yeah, on the first visit, 99% of the time, the patient comes on their own. Mm-hmm. Occasionally their partner is there with them. Mm-hmm. I don't discourage partners from coming. I just leave it open to the patient okay. and, you know, anywhere from you know, the, the dilators that they're using that I mentioned earlier, that is for sure something I want the patient to do to themselves. Yeah. I tell the patient, I don't like to use dilators on patients. I don't know exactly where I am. I don't know if I'm putting too much pressure. Like yeah. it's not going to work for somebody else to use dilators on you. Like if you're using it on yourself, you know, if you have pain, you can adjust. There's not like a two sentence communication of, and, and plus I don't want your partner being associated with them causing you pain. And yeah. so let's like keep it just to like, me doing it here with my hand, you doing it at home with your dilator, and that's, that's the a team of great like pelvic set of boundaries. Yeah. So if a patient is really insistent or just requesting that their partner be involved somehow, I'm like, they're always welcome to come into every session. They can sit in here while we're doing our thing, and mm-hmm. I can explain what I'm doing. I can help them understand why you have this pain, what the treatment plan is, what my expected outcome is, so they can hear it all from me. So they're totally always fine to sit in the session with us. Um, Also, if they want to go one step further, then I'll teach them how to treat other things that I found on the initial evaluation that they might be able to help with, like maybe massaging their back. And it's not like a sensual massage. It's more like a therapeutic massage. Or maybe I get them involved by just recommending maybe the like two days a week you're using your dilator, like your partner can 
make dinner that night or your partner can like go get takeout like just give you a little bit of space and support you in whatever way so i I give them ideas that how the partner can be supportive not necessarily always physical but Mm -hmm. be there in just creating space and showing support in other ways. Uh, that sounds amazing. I also imagine if a partner is like willing to come in and making that time investment that they're pretty like supportive. Have you ever had any negative experience with partners being like too? Mm, let me, uh, not that stands out. That's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. I mean, if they're there, they're committed. Yeah. They're usually not yeah. like disinterested like, if they're there. Yeah. And on the flip side, so this would be one of my older patients that came in. They had not had sex in 20 years. Wow. So she was like nearing 65 because she, she started to have bladder problems, which then turned into like sexual problems oh, pretty quickly. Yeah. And they just were like, well, I guess that's not a part of our lives anymore. So she actually came into me with her bladder frequency diagnosis, <sighs> that painful bladder syndrome I mentioned. Uh-huh. And then I asked her about her sexual function, which I do all my patients. Yeah. And she's like, oh, we haven't been able to have sex in like 15, 20 years. And, and I said, well, is that something that you would like to do again? And she just looked at me like, is that possible? Can can I tell you, she was having sex again in six weeks. Ah, you're an angel. I like chills. I like chills (laughs) because, and then her bladder problem took another like six or eight weeks after that to fully resolve. Her husband came with her to every visit after that. He didn't come to the first one, yeah. but as soon as yeah. like, like not every visit, maybe like within a oh couple weeks gosh. and like she saw how quickly she was progressing through the dilators, which often come in a kit of like smaller sizes, working up yeah. to larger sizes. He was like, we're going to have sex again. Like what time is her, what time's her appointment? That's Does amazing. she need a 90 minute? Is 60 yeah. okay? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like this is working. Like it's she's huge. not been able to do this in a while. So yeah, really sweet. And just like, he had like a smile on his face and he was like walking in with like a little extra I love step. That. I yeah, love me that too. So much. Yeah, like to bring something back that's been gone in their relationship yeah. for so long. So, I mean, one of the reasons it keeps me motivated to do what I do, bringing things back into a relationship or helping people find that in the first place. Amazing. Like, you know, if I see unconsummated marriages, they've never had sex, being able wow. to help that. I mean, I got it. I have a text of like two weeks ago from one of my former patients who's pregnant now. So, you know, just getting That's things amazing. like that. I mean, I just, I love what I do. That's amazing. Okay. So for, I, I'm just like overwhelmed by amazing. I think I just said it six times in a row. For people who are out there listening and are curious about your work or think they maybe need to work with you, but they are far away or can't afford things or, you know, what would you say to them? What advice do you have for them? So there's a lot of different ways I've tried to make my program that has been proven to work. And it's actually using like scientific-based physical therapy treatment methods mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. applied to the pelvic floor. Yeah. Trying to make them more accessible was writing a book. Great. So I wrote a book called Sex Without Pain, A Self-Treatment Guide to the Sex Life You Deserve. And that's on Amazon in print. It's also um, in a couple other places in print if you Google it. And then it's available in ebook everywhere. Awesome. And also it's available in PDF for immediate download on sexwithoutpainbook.com. That's amazing. So as far as like a written resource that can take you through step-by-step on how to use your dilators better than just inserting it and holding it for 15 minutes, which is what a lot of practitioners teach. It's it's not functional. I'm like, you know, you don't stretch any muscle for 15 minutes, you know, in in a stretch. And, and in fact, if you do, often when you come out of it, you're a little more worse off. Like you're just like, why did I hold my neck in that position for 15 minutes? Totally. So, so it never made sense to me. So it's a better way to use dilators. Amazing. And then also addresses like some of the other larger 
muscle groups that can affect it. Would you feel comfortable just giving us like a couple sentence overview of them so listeners can get an idea of the content in your book? Yeah, um, you know, part of it is dispelling myths, Great. which I had mentioned at the beginning, like just drinking a glass of wine. Sorry, that's not a cure for anyone's pain ever. Yeah. Just like if you went to an orthopedist and they told you to have a shot of tequila for your back pain, <laughs> Would you ever go back to them again? No. So why so many gynecologists say, just have a glass of wine, you just need to relax. Like why they think that's okay advice to give anybody is beyond me. Yeah. So kind of um, dispelling myths, trying to connect with the reader mm -hmm. by sharing stories that they are probably their stories. And so I do have a section that's like, patient cases, like just basically, you know, quotes of their story and, and where they started and where they got to. I have like a self-assessment, just teaching them basic vulvar anatomy, using a mirror, getting them comfortable with trying to identify where their pain is yeah. so that they can track it. So I have like a tracker so they can know where their pain is. That's genius um, because I do think for myself, figuring out also pleasure, figuring out where my feelings lie in my body or like what is happening. So, you know, recently with partners, if someone's going down on me and it feels great, I'm like, what are you doing so I can know, you know, because I yeah. do think figuring that out is one of the hardest parts. Yeah, exactly. And then it goes through step-by-step step the different techniques that you use with your dilators and has like a transition to intercourse section. So it's using the dilators even a little more functional that would mimic like penetrative intercourse with movement. Yeah. And then kind of wraps up with treating the more orthopedic things that could be contributing. Like I have a whole back section of different orthopedic stretches that can be done like for the hip, the low back to help take pressure indirectly off the pelvic floor by addressing these other areas of dysfunction. So that, that kind of goes through how, how the book is laid out mm -hmm, and it's, mm -hmm. and I, it's 99 pages. Oh, like perfect. I know. So readable. I, I gotta tell you, I've never been a big reader. I think ever since college, I used to be, but yeah. then as soon as I like had to read things, I was just like reading, just not fun anymore. Yeah. And so for me, I'm like, the last thing I want to do is like, if I'm having pain and problems in my relationship because I can't have sex, I don't want to read 400 pages about yeah. it. Like, just tell me what I need to know. Totally. And when I started writing it, I started writing it in 2012, mm -hmm. late 11, maybe it came out in 2014. When I first started writing it, I thought it was going to be like a 15-page pamphlet. Like, just tell me what I need to know. Mm -hmm. It's going to be better. But then adding those other sections I felt was really important to yeah. just give like a backstory, help the patient feel or the, the reader feel that they can be very connected with it and that it is the right program for them to take the time to buy the dilators, take the time to do the exercises. It's not a magic pill. Like, you do have to do some work, mm -hmm. but but you know, you'll be rewarded in the end. So what are some of the biggest challenges that your patients face? Like, are they primarily physical? Obviously there's the initial physical challenge, whatever it is, mm -hmm. but as they're working through, like where, what are the most difficult moments that people are up against as they're in the work? It varies depending on the patient. Mm -hmm. If they've had difficulty even inserting tampons, mm -hmm. sometimes it's just learning how to insert mm -hmm. that first dilator in. Mm -hmm. The first dilator is the size of a tampon. Like it's really skinny, but it's longer. So you have like a little bit of a handle to it. Yeah. So it could just be that initial, like, can I, can I insert this and can I be okay? So I'll work with patients in various ways to overcome that fear. Other times it's like, ah, I'm stuck. Like, there's the medium dilator, then there's the large dilator. And like, it just is such a big jump for them. Yeah. So they have like in between size dilators. So we, we can kind of work with that um, to help them get unstuck on that. Sometimes they'll develop itching as part of it, but it's not a like allergic response. Right. It's 
just the tissue has been so tight for so long that when you start giving more mobility to it, to the fascia in the area, it, it feels like itching yeah. and, and it's, it's not an infection. Um, so just kind of keeping them calm and understanding like if you're concerned, you know, go to, go see a doctor, but you don't have any signs of infection. Yeah. There's no odor, there's no discharge, there's no burning, you know, it's, it's a very specific like connective tissue type symptom. So getting them through that symptom is another challenge that comes up sometimes. Transitioning them to intercourse is always a new thing for them because you're going from like a smooth, hard plastic dilator to a penis yeah. or, or, a or a dildo, dildo or, or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's different. So yeah. just prepping them like from a psychological side to accept that you can physically do this size. It's just a different shape. Like you're going to be okay. Wow. I, I always tell people I have a psych minor and I do, but I'm yeah. like, I'm not like a psychotherapist, but, right. but you know, I, I pull a little psychology you in there to. to try to keep them motivated and understand that their body is physically capable of it. They just have to overcome that mental barrier. Wow. So that would be that would be some of the maybe more common challenges. Amazing. Yeah. And then you've also done work around the world, correct? Like you sometimes go speaking and yeah. if I'm recalling correctly, you were in China and where else? In Turkey. Turkey. Yeah. Can last you talk year. a little bit about what you just noticed culturally or maybe any differences and how much were you able to talk about sex? Yeah, and in, in Turkey I was concerned, like legitimately concerned because it's a Muslim country, but it's very like Western as far as at least Istanbul is concerned. And as I was like prepping my course, Mm -hmm. there is a ton of female sexual dysfunction research Mm -hmm. that comes out of Turkey, out of universities in Turkey. Really? I was like, there's another Turkish study. Like this is incredible. So it's obviously something they're very interested in and they've identified as a problem. Yeah. At that course, I didn't just have therapists and physicians from Turkey. There were some from surrounding Middle Eastern countries. So there was a woman from Saudi Arabia okay, and she told me that dilators are illegal, right? So I'm, I'm presenting my program and I'm talking about dilators. She comes up to me during one of the breaks. She's like, well, what would you suggest? Because oh my in my God. country, dilators are illegal. I can only imagine what the penalty is. Like, I don't want to think about what the penalty would be oh if a woman God. was using dilators, you know, because it's such a male-centric society that, you know, for a woman to help herself not have pain with sex, you're going to make that illegal? Like, what's wrong with you? So I told her candles because before dilators were invented, that's what I think people used were candles of various sizes. Yeah. So I'm like, well, you... Holy shit. That's a huge barrier. I mean, I was kind of like, okay, I've never gotten that question before. How can we sort of process through this to, so this can be meaningful for her when she goes home. Wow. So that was interesting. When I went to China, I was actually working with the Chinese Olympic Committee and I did a talk on pelvic pain and cyclists, Mm -hmm. but it was all external, not sexual related. It just wasn't relative to that population, although it's probably relative to that part. You you have to present the frame that's appropriate and then hope that the underlying information yeah. that perhaps is and, needed. And can I tell you, it was a lecture with a lab. So we did external pelvic floor palpation through clothes, okay? uh-huh, uh-huh. certain muscles through clothes that tend to be overactive in that pain population. I had my back turned. I had like my female model. When I turned around after like demonstrating and talking for like five minutes, all the men had left. There were only, only the female therapists were there. I was like, where did the guys go? I was like, are you kidding me? Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, okay. And they're like, the, the, one of the women therapists was like, they're not ever going to do this. 
Like, we'll do it. Wow. They're not going to do this. Like, they were just like, and I'm out. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Too much to watch. Too much to even watch, apparently. I was, I was really shocked, but you know. Yeah. They were not comfortable with it, yeah. and that's yeah. on them. So. And, there, and there are differences, and hopefully we can make progress. I consider it progress yeah. <laughs> that we can be adults sitting in the same room. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, but, but part of like my connections, too, with these um, international is, I mean, I'm connected with people around the world yeah. through the International Pelvic Pain Society, which does a lot of, like at our conference, we talk a lot about sexual dysfunction and specifically around pain and chronic pelvic pain. I do telehealth sessions as well. So like you had asked before, how can we make this more accessible to people? So if you are geographically not in LA, we can talk through, and a lot of times it's around my book, like patients Mm -hmm. try it, they get to a certain point Mm -hmm. and then they need some essentially coaching because they're just, they feel like there's a plateau or they don't understand something. So there's coaching sessions that I do um, online through like a secure HIPAA compliant platform. And you know, the, the book, the telehealth, but people do come and see me that don't live here. You wow. know, I mean, I just had someone a couple of weeks ago from New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. I mean. That's how good you are at working with pelvic floors. They fly around the world to see you. That is a long flight. It's, yeah, I guess word gets around. That's so, amazing. So, you know, people, people find me and they reach out and it's, yeah, it's really wonderful to, yeah. to see the change in everybody. Amazing. Okay. So you are so full of excellent information. Do you feel like we've covered if you had a wish of what people knew about the work you did, or do you have anything additional to say about that? Well, I have some wishes. I wish that girls at a younger age were not dismissed when they report that they're having difficulty with pelvic pain. I wish that young college students were not dismissed when they go to student health, that the pain, their experience with sex is normal. They are just inexperienced, like trying to really blame and shame the patient for having pain. You know, I wish that that didn't happen. And I wish that providers in general were just more sensitive to the fact and more aware that pelvic physical therapy and therapists like myself exist and the great outcomes that we have. And understand their limitations with time and they, their limitations with the knowledge to treat it and just refer to somebody. It takes 10 seconds to write a referral, yes. to put it through the computer That's and so just true. don't blame or shame your patients. And just normalize. Please, please. Yeah. Don't, don't even, don't, yeah, don't normalize it. Like yeah. acknowledge it as being something that's common, but as something that can be addressed. And here are the providers you should go see. I also do wish insurance would reimburse for the level of care these patients require. Yes, I'm personally out of network with everybody. So it's a cash-based practice. It is financially inaccessible to people. So the book is good. Like people have information to a good chunk of what I teach patients and within the first few weeks, so they can at least get themselves started. But insurance reimbursement is never going to get any better. Yeah. And we were talking on the phone, you mentioned other countries have pelvic floor rehabilitation built into post, postnatal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Postnatal, postpartum, yeah, yeah, like uh, Scandinavian countries, France, six to twelve postpartum visits for women after they deliver. It's part of it's just covered. It's what every woman gets. So yeah, I wish for all those things, but healthcare in the U.S. is going the opposite direction. They're going to cover less things over time, not more. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wish a lot of those things, but I just hope that with the accessibility of information between internet and social media and podcasts 
that they just are now better informed than they were 20 years ago and they can just be more proactive and take charge of their own health and not listen to providers that don't believe that they have something that's worthy of being treated because it is worthy of being treated. They deserve pain-free sex, however they choose to have sex. And that's my hope for them. (sighs) Okay. Lastly, do you have a piece of sex advice that you would just like love to blanket the world with? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, my piece of sex advice, I guess, I mean, it, it kind of goes along with what I've been saying yeah. that you should expect pain-free sex. You should not expect anything less than that. And you should seek the answers until you find a solution to your pain. Mm, beautiful. Where can people find you? I'm all over the place. Great. So <laughs> I, I'm in Los Angeles. I have offices in Beverly Hill, Sherman Oaks, and Glendale. Okay. You can find me at feminapt.com. That's F-E-M-I-N-A-P-T.com. I'm also on Instagram at the Lady Parts PT, but you can also follow at feminapt. And then I have my sort of sister or brother company, if you want to call it, Fusion Wellness PT. So that's that social media handle on Instagram and Twitter. That does more of my male pelvic health, transgender health, pediatric pelvic health, and general orthopedic. I mean, that's where I am. I'm mostly most active on my Instagram pages. So um, you can always reach out to me, message me there, or you can go to one of my websites, feminapt.com or fusionwellnesspt.com and use the contact form there and the messages will get forwarded to me as well. Awesome. And one more time, her book is Sex Without Pain, A Self-Treatment Guide to the Sex Life You Deserve. So go check that out. Heather, thank you so much for coming on this show. Thanks, Wyo. This is a great chat. Thank I you. Loved it. Yes. Here's a very sexy story from Niney Marie. A first time having sex together, but obviously not our first times ever. Discussed in depth, but not planned, at least not consciously. Once we were clear on birth control and STIs, I was feeling good and I cleaned up the hair job between my legs. We met in the car because my room was not an option for my emotionally unstable roommate. So, car it was, and his car nonetheless. A beater POS project car, using nice words. Initial making out, just like we'd done the evening prior. But it got more aggressive in the best of ways. I jumped right into his lap, and chest rubbed against his face, and the seat laid back mostly enjoying staring at his magnificent face and eyes, pressing my boobs and pussy rhythmically into his chest and groin and leg. So wave-like, humping, to be clearer. He felt me up, stuck his hands under my pants. My old high school basketball Jerry Nike sweatpants. Squeezed my ass both hands, full of some sweet cheeks, making me make some pleasure sounds. So I kiss his once-discovered growl-moan zone, lick and suck and bite his left side neck. His right is too ticklish. When that boy growl-moans, it sends lightning up and down my tummy and spine, making me make animal sounds. He stuck his fingers in my pussy. It was then that I could not just feel but hear how wet and aroused I was. I rode his fingers like a dildo and made as many pelvic movement variations as my body dictated. Meanwhile, he bites the tops of my ears, as per instruction, making me very frustrated. Very frustrated. 
I could feel his hard dick under his pants. I wanted so badly to touch it, but didn't because we didn't plan on having sex and didn't want to be an even greater tease to his blue balls. The more I fucked with his neck and gave him the I need you inside me now eyes, the more he vocalized how bad he wants to have sex with me, asked if I had a condom. It took two more rounds of simmering down and cooling off, turned up rubbing and touching and kissing for me to decide to go get that condom. My wisdom said I'm ready, just make the most of this damn ugly car. And boy did we steam up that car real fast. I got the condom and we moved to the back seat where I got undressed in less than three seconds and he took off his pants. For me to see one hard big boy, all for me, and all because of me. He couldn't get the condom on soon enough. As soon as he got it on, I sat cowgirl style on him and bounced around. Scooped up and down and all around over that cock. To hear him moan made me so much more horny. Bounce, bounce, bounce and slap that ass. Man, it was good. Then, the temperature changed. He took his shirt off. Holy fuck, holy shit, holy shallow piece of shit I am. That man is so fine. His arms and chest and abs and face and cock. All precious and glorious, all magnificent, so smoking hot. So masculine, so healthy. So, so, so handsome. The veins in his arms make me want to die. I'd fuck his arms, suck them drive all their blood like a freaky kink vampire. He put me on my back and mounted me missionary so I could see vividly all that breathtaking beauty. And I'm not a very visually sexually stimulated person. That was the cherry on top. His face is the hottest thing. The way he looks at me in the eyes and locks it there. Makes that mouth-watering lip movement makes me want to curl up and die. Just kill me now. Kill me with your sex, your lust, your passion. He held my legs and rubbed my clit, made me squirt a little. I'm wet as fresh rain in the spring, drenched. Then a fucking car parks next to us. Its damn bright lights and slamming doors made him slow down and be quieter. I covered his eyes and ears and said, don't stop. They can't see us. It's too fogged up. I made him just forget. Just forget them and keep going. He did. I think he was surprised that I wanted to keep going. I did, baby. Oh boy, I did. I don't stop for anybody. So he choked me. He kissed me. He moaned after I stared in his eyes and said, fuck me harder. He called me a bad girl. He said, you're nasty, aren't you? I just grinned the devil's grin. He turned me over and pounded me like a bitch. An in-heat little bitch getting a good view of my perfect round white ass. Smacked it and I moaned and giggled a playful yes. Do it again. Smashing my head into the door, rug burning and bruising my knees, scratching my back, made it insanely over the top. Just to turn me back around and look into my eyes and give me a good view of his godly body. I love when he talks, when he makes sounds, when he goes faster and faster. A wet sipping build to pull out with a condom on and finish himself off. Lots of sweat. Lots of little vocalizations of fucking, you're so sexy. Then the steam slowed. The heartbeat set in. The stop and stare began. The nakedness in the back of a car was divine. Alone together. Soft caresses. A long hug. Me? Kinda gonna cry. Cry because I was so happy. 
Good sex makes me happy. Good sex with a gorgeous person makes me even more happy. Good sex that is kinda wild and naughty, over the top. Good sex with someone I have compatibility with more than just sex is pretty damn perfect. So I whimpered like a baby. He was quiet, held me, kissed me, asked if I was alright. I said yes, just happy, and I cry when I'm happy. Happy and scared to fall in love, scared to bond and attach and be crazy. Moments, maybe an hour or more, maybe way less, I don't know. Time wasn't really there, just softness, holding each other. I felt very safe. I felt wanted. I felt beautiful. I felt lucky. I felt joy. I felt the excitement peep into peace for a moment.